Good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody. I kind of like the holy mess of already what we've been about. I mean, uh, just people hungry to eat uh, the meal that God offers us through Jesus Christ. Welcome to the locker room. <laughs> That's uh, what someone called Crossroads many, many years ago, uh, the locker room church. And uh, I kind of like that for the simple reason that hopefully we've been all about the kingdom of heaven all week. Uh, God unleashing his kingdom in us and through us uh, in our various spheres of life. And then we come back here to get back in the locker room and meet with God, be together. Um, some of you guys are wounded and bruised. Uh, hopefully you can get some encouragement. Um, some of you are tired and exhausted. Uh, but here's the deal. Does anybody remember our theme verse for the year? Please, someone. Someone stand up right now and just belt it out. Anyone? First Peter 2.9. Can you keep going? Anybody? Amen. You guys, that, those, are, those are marching orders from God as to who we are. A chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, uh, declaring his praises. And... Uh, I'm really excited for what we're going to step into the next week, uh, next three weeks. Micah 6, verse 8. Because God's going to continue to push that into us, uh, what it means for us to be his people in the world for his kingdom. And uh, today we're going to get this thing started with a great friend of mine, a guy that I respect so much, uh, Dr. Tim Gombis uh, from GRTS. And uh, I, I'm grateful for GRTS. I'm grateful for this man, uh, when I heard him speak this message that he's going to give to us this morning at the Justice Conference uh, last spring, I asked him, I said, hey, Tim, can we have that for our church? And uh, he says to me, yeah, I'll send you all my notes. <laughs> and that speaks to who this guy is. I'm like, no, I want you to teach it. You're going to get a prophetic word today. And uh, God, I just... Thank you for Tim, for Dr. Gombis, and who he is, and where you've placed him, and his faithfulness to you, and for the word, God, that we are going to hear. It's your word today. God, may our hearts be open. God, you need, no, you, you desire uh, for your people to be your people in your world, a world that you love. And God, we want to be your people. And so I pray that you could use uh, these words to conform our hearts to hear and to be changed and conformed into the image of Christ. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks, brother. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks very much for uh, this invitation, Rod. I'm very glad to be with you this morning. Um, yeah, I would have rather just given my information, my work to Rod. Uh, I struggle 
as a very strong introvert being around other people. So Sundays I usually try to dash out of my church as quickly as possible. I'm working on having conversations. But I'm also very delighted to be with you this morning. Um, I just think the world of Crossroads people, and I always love being around you. This is such a, a serious delight for me. This is a sign of God's ridiculous, overpowering love for me that I get to be with you this, be here with you this morning. So thank you. Um, one of the things I love about Crossroads is um, not only your reveling in wonderful, lively worship, I, it's just my heart just soars. Um, and it's also painful, it's, it's difficult to keep it together when you've got uh, some violin. I'm just, I melt. I just is such a, uh, beautiful. Um, and in all that, what I love about being here is that you love the Bible. You love the Bible, um, which I also love. I love studying the Bible. It is such, it is a crime. I get to do this for my living. This is how I make my paychecks. I study the Bible and I teach it. And I love that. And I love being around people who love the Bible. Um, what I find that is a rare thing, however, is for people to fully lean into what it means to love the Bible. Because that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of fortitude. Because the Bible always devastates and always renews. The Bible always obliterates and always redeems. The Bible always unsettles and then resettles. And I find that being around evangelical people in our culture today, just because of a, a variety of forces, I find that being around most evangelical people who love the Bible, there's, there's a desire for the Bible to comfort, but there, there's a resistance uh, to letting the Bible unsettle. And um, I've just been through enough in my life to just not be interested in that project. So I love being around people that want to hear from Scripture um, in its full voice, because that's what I'm interested in. The Bible will not redeem unless it devastates. It will not renew unless it obliterates. So we've got to let Scripture do its work among us. And um, I'm trying to change my language. It's not that we've got to let the Bible do that. We get to let the Bible do that. This is our privilege. This is our delight. This is our joy. And I only wanted to say that because um, whoever chose Micah 6.8, I want to blame everything on them uh, because Micah 6.8 comes in the context. It's, it's very pithy. Uh, the statements in Micah 6.8 are very um, memorable, but they come in a very uncomfortable context, uh, a context that's pretty rude. Uh, Micah is a bit rude, um, not nearly as rude as some of the other prophets, but he's... He, like the other prophets, is very confrontational and very unsettling, very uncomfortable. So uh, I want to try to give the Bible's full voice today and, and let it fire our hearts with hope, even at, as it will lead us into some uncomfortable waters. So I want to talk today about uh, embodying God's justice as God's people, embodying God's justice as God's people. Uh, and what I want to do is open up our hearts and our minds uh, to see what God is doing in the world 
and to the bigness of the gospel and the wonder of all that God is calling us to. So what I want to do is consider the, the uh, biblical context of Micah 6.8. Where does that come in in the story of God's people? And then I want to move to the New Testament um, to help unpack a little bit just of what, what Paul uh, says is the big story that's going on and how that shapes our identity. But to understand Micah's message, we need to step back a little bit and uh, color in some biblical context. And I want to start at the beginning, uh, start at the moment of creation to help us understand what it means to be a people of God's justice. So this is going to be a while, maybe about two and a half hours or so, because I'm going to start at the beginning. <laughs> I thought you said you loved the Bible. <laughs> it won't be that long. Uh, well, I want to start at the beginning because there was a moment uh, where there was no need for justice. Uh, at the moment of creation, God created his world to be overseen by humanity and to be managed and ruled by humanity on behalf of God. And God wanted his uh, kingdom embodied through human conduct and through the human enjoyment of shalom on earth. Uh, that was God's intention. Of course, that went wrong and humanity rebelled. Humanity chose chaos, disorder, non-order, over uh, embodying God's shalom. And now we have the need for righteousness because, as we'll see, righteousness has to do with setting right what has been thrown out of whack, restoring shalom where it has been ruined. Um, God started a mission to reclaim what was lost by calling Abraham. And he told Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation and I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. Abraham's family went down to Egypt, was uh, enslaved and Egypt sort of functioned as a womb to then form Israel and give birth to the people of Israel. God delivered Israel out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the land of promise. And he called them, just as was uh, read out a moment ago, or I'm sure it was recited from memory. He called them to be a kingdom of priests. He called Israel to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a political entity, a nation that brought God to the nations and brought the nations to God. That was their identity. They were called to be a kingdom of priests. And they were called to be a holy nation. A holy nation. Now, we have to think about what holiness means. Holiness means just radical difference. They're called to be a different kind of a nation. A nation that is not like the nations. They were to be a political entity, an organized body of people under the rule of God. That's all politics means an organized way of life under rule. Israel is called to be an organized people under the rule of God. And they were to be a holy nation, a people unlike any other people. Whereas the nations don't care about justice, Israel was supposed to be all oriented around justice. And there are two different Hebrew words for justice, uh, tzedakah and mishpat. And I don't I never bring biblical languages into any kind of talk around normal people, but just to say that, uh, righteousness, is not, righteousness is not merely in the Old Testament doing what is right or giving people what is due. If you do wrong, you get punished. If you do right, you get rewarded. That's part of justice uh, in the Bible. That's part of God's character. But justice is far more than that in the Old Testament. It's actually active and creative. Israel was supposed to be a people that took the initiative 
to discern where in culture shalom is out of whack and to take the positive, creative steps to set it right. To look out for where God's people, all of God's people, are not experiencing all of God's shalom and to do what it takes to see to it that shalom is spreading into their lives. So righteousness, justice, this is the same term. Righteousness, justice, we could use either one of those terms to translate the uh, Old Testament terms and the New Testament terms. Uh, righteousness, justice are creative, active, and that's what God wanted for his people. Uh, one other very important thing to say about righteousness in the Old Testament is this. Um, when God talks about his own character as a righteous God, he does indicate that he never shows favoritism. He's righteous. You can't buy God off if you have means, okay? And that is how he wants his people to uh, be represented, um, how he wants his people to represent him. But God does not show favoritism. However, as a righteous God, God is always advocating for the vulnerable. God is always advocating for the vulnerable. I just want to show you a couple of passages uh, where God talks about himself this way. This is from Deuteronomy 10, 18. Deuteronomy 10, 18 says this, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And of course, as God's people, God wanted Israel to embody a way of life that represented that God. In Deuteronomy 27, 19, in uh, the context of Deuteronomy 27, there's a whole list of curses. People who are damnable, people whose behavior is so outrageous that God's curse abides on them. And Israel was supposed to put these people out of the nation, otherwise they would bring God's curse on the nation. What kind of people does God want put out of the nation? Deuteronomy 27, 19 says this, Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. So God's heart is for the vulnerable, and God's justice entails being a people who actively look out for how the vulnerable are possibly being mistreated, and doing whatever it takes to see to it that the vulnerable are looked after. This is Exodus 22, 21 through 24. It's, it's difficult to think about these texts and the heart of God without thinking about the tone our culture takes in talking about immigration and about foreigners and about people who are non-citizens. That's the most, um, non, a non-citizen living here. That's what foreigner really is in, uh, in the Bible. But think about how, how our culture thinks about those people. This is the heart of God, Exodus 22, 21 to 24. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner. For you, Israel, were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. How can we listen to this text without thinking about what's happening on our border? If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. 
That is tough talk. It's funny, I'm a, it's funny the kind of behavior that happens in a seminary. I, I talk to people in ministry and ministry leaders, and um, we say things like this. Hey, what are, what are the big issues coming down the pike? What are, what are some of the things we need to be aware of? And um, it's hard for me to know what to think because I'm always thinking in terms of the playoff scenarios for the Cubs. Um, that's what I think about. I'm not thinking about what are the threats coming down the pike um, besides the Brewers. Um, but very honestly, as ministry leaders and as God's people thinking about what we should be thinking about, I think we should start with the things that God says, if you do these things as my people, I will kill you. <laughs> That's terrifying. It's terrifying to abide in a culture where we do have injustices and to call myself a Christian because the God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ says to his people, do these things, be tolerant of injustice, and I will kill you. That's so terrifying. So terrifying. Israel was supposed to be a nation, though, that embodied that kind of God, and that, as Rod just said, took its marching orders from that kind of God, a God whose heart was for the vulnerable and the oppressed. Israel was called to live as a nation as God wanted humanity to live before the fall, to embody that kind of mode of life. And it wasn't all threatening, and it wasn't all negative. The pursuit of being a people of justice was a positive, hopeful vision. And being a holy nation included tons of other stuff, like Sabbath keeping, Sabbath keeping, uh, which is so crucial, and it's so outrageous. It's so outrageous, and it's funny that Israel, and we do the same thing, turned Sabbath keeping into a negative thing. God said to his people, I want you to work and gather provisions for your bodies for six days, and on one day, I want absolutely reckless, irresponsible behavior. Do not care for your needs one day. I'll take care of your needs. Do anything, the whole list of activities you could possibly do besides looking out for yourself. Anything. A hike, a walk, nap, two naps, reading a book, anything and everything. Reckless joy, because God is passionate that his people enjoy being in his world. And one year out of seven, don't do any work to provide for your needs one year. That's irresponsible and reckless. That's crazy. And of course, it takes dramatic faith to actually be that kind of people, which is why Israel never did any of those things, because it's very difficult to live the life of an absolutely holy God here on earth. An absolutely holy God. And as an exercise in that, that will take two or three seconds, think about what comes to your mind when we say holy. Do you think austere? Do you think strict? Do you think limits? Or do you think unbelievably reckless joy? God is an overpoweringly, recklessly joyful God, and his people get to be that as well. And that includes taking the active steps uh, that need to be taken to restore shalom where it's off. So Israel is a political entity, a political people, 
That is, they are organized under the rule of God. And they were to be a people that were radically different. And of course, you know how the story goes. They failed in doing this. They did not do just about anything that God said to do. Um, they oppressed the poor. They didn't care when the poor were oppressed. Even though God called for them to stop oppressing the poor and to stop not caring when the poor are oppressed. They mistreated foreigners. They didn't rotate their crops. It's one of the reasons God kicked Israel out of, out of his land. They didn't rotate crops. What, what a crazy part of the Bible. Why is that in there? Because God loves the ground. He loves his world. And being a holy people representing that utter, utterly different God means caring for the ground, caring for his world. He kicked them out of the land and said, now my, now my land will have its Sabbaths. Well, justice was wide-ranging, justice, righteousness. It involved all those things, being a political people, caring for one another, caring for the poor, uh, looking to see how the nations could be discipled, and they never were interested in any of it. And this is where Micah 6 comes in. Micah 6, and like I said, this is very unsettling and tremendously rude. Micah says this, With what shall I come before the Lord? After five or six chapters of a rehearsal of all the injustice... Micah asks, what does God want? Listen to how rude this is. I'm sorry, but I'll translate this for our contemporary culture in a second. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What's Micah doing there? He's listing the elements of Israel's commanded worship. What does God want with all this injustice in the land? What does he want? This is rude. Does he want an offering? Does he want an opening worship song? Does he want a worship band? Does he want you coming here? Is this what God wants? This is, this is what Micah's asking. And Micah, like I said, is the polite prophet. Amos 5 is tremendously confrontational, where Amos does the same thing, listing all the elements of a worship service and saying, your offering stinks. I hate your opening welcome. I hate the introduction of the speaker. It's like, what? These prophets are tremendously rude. But this is what God is saying to his people. I've told you to do these things in your worship. But if you're going to do those things and not become a people of justice, don't do any of it. I don't want any of it. So what does God want? And this is the context of our statement. I didn't write this part down in my notes. Thank you. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. This is what God wants from us. Israel failed to heed God's call to be a people of justice, so God sent them into exile. But this is the crucial thing to grasp from talking about Israel. Israel, as a corporate people of justice, Israel's designed as a corporate people of justice, as a political entity, 
as a gathered people under the rule of God. That's the template for us. That's the template for us. Uh, as the church, I know that we're not used to thinking about this, but we are a political unit. This is a political entity. We're doing politics here today. We are a gathered people with organized ways of living under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. No amens. That's the reality. This is politics. Unfortunately, we've all been discipled in this nation to think about politics differently. That's, that's one of the tragedies of modern American Christianity is that we, when we think about politics, we don't think about, you know, sharing, living with an open hand, doing justice, living with mercy and generosity. We think about this utterly, utterly anemic thing that we do every four years for about two or three minutes. What's my political involvement? I vote. But as Christian people, we are political. We do Jesus-oriented things as, as the one who is the true Lord and ruler of this universe. Um, the entities that we imagine are up and running and actually run things are all imposters. Coke, Pepsi, Burger King, Nike, I don't know, International Monetary Fund, all these things are just passing things. The Lord Jesus Christ is what matters. Uh, so our political involvement has to actually be quite different. But Israel is the template for how to be political and how to be thinking about this. We are a political unit, an entity that is created by God to embody God's justice. Um, we often think that the Old Testament was when God was working with the corporate people, and the New Testament is when salvation is individual. I get saved, and I come to this place to learn how to manage this that I have in here. We don't imagine that God has actually claimed my whole body and made me a limb in a political body. We are part of the body politic of Jesus, and we are wrapped up into a larger story than just the story of me and my salvation. We need to do some thinking over maybe 5, 10, or 25 years about reordering our language and our imagination so that we actually think corporately and cosmically. So what I want to do this morning for the rest of I'm, this is just starting, right? Two and a half hours. What I want to do in the time that remains is talk about that big story that God has swallowed us up into, wrapped us up into, snatched us up into this gracious, awesome story that God has made us a part of. And I want to do that from Ephesians 1 and 2, which is really the heart of Paul's gospel. The story begins at the end of chapter 1 in uh, Ephesians 1 verses 20 to 23, where Paul ends a section talking about um, what he's praying for his audiences, that they would see the wonder that God has really brought them into and he says this, the wonder that I'm talking about and the great power that's available for you was demonstrated by God when he worked the strength of his might or when God flexed his cosmic muscles. God flexed his muscles by doing something pivotal, crucial to the cosmos. He did this in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him 
and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When Paul says that, that he, uh, it disappeared, sorry. When he says uh, he put all things in subjection under his feet, that's Bible talk, that's Psalm 110 language, for God achieving a victory in Jesus. God won a victory on the cross, which is completely upside down. God won by losing. God won a victory in the cross. He achieved a triumph in the cross, and he defeated some very specific entities. He defeated all rule and authority and powers and dominion. He defeated these cosmic, these archangelic cosmic ruler figures. Now, would you, this is, these are, I know these are kind of crazy parts of the Bible, uh, but we have, we have to ask ourselves, who are the powers and authorities that God has actually defeated in Jesus? The powers and authorities, uh, which we don't think about very often as Western Christians, but these actually play a massive part in the biblical storyline. The powers and authorities are these cosmic ruler figures that God originally created and they were good. And he wanted to uh, exercise his rule over the cosmos through these archangelic ruler figures. And they played a very specific role in creation. God wanted them to sort of shape ideologies and mindsets and human ways of life, um, shaping just sort of imaginations and um, sort of available path, pathways of life that are in the world so that humans would live lives that lifted up the name of the one true God. And they were to be completely invisible, and we were supposed to really never know about them because they just, God wanted humans on the center of the stage of biblical history. Well, they rebelled. You can read about this in Genesis 6. These figures rebelled, and they've actually oriented human life so that it is perverted. They actually sow within creation corrupted ideologies, corrupted thought patterns, foolish ways of life, um, ways of life that make our lives spiritual death. And they're in league with Satan and uh, the powers of sin and death. And in uh, Jewish literature of Paul's day, and we see this actually represented in Paul's letters, these characters orient human life in very specific ways so that humans will be greedy and pursue greed, so that human life will be oriented by sensuality, and so that we will be tempted uh, to follow our own lusts and live with unrestrained sexual desire. But the powers and authorities are also responsible for a lot of other impulses that we find in our world. Um, one of the ways that we see this in, uh, in the Jewish literature of Paul's day is that they inflame tribal loyalties so that I trumpet the claims and the wonders of my tribe and I down your tribe. Or I trumpet the claims of my nation and I foment hatred of your nation. Um, we actually see this, and this is, it's hard actually to talk about this, especially like in an almost entirely white audience, white middle class audience, um, but it's, it's hard to actually study this topic without thinking about my own upbringing um, where we were patriotic, where we had made strong claims about our nation over against other nations. But this is the work of the powers and authorities. Doesn't mean that we have to dislike or say unkind things about our own nation, but we have to be somewhat skeptical 
about our own claims of our tribe over against other tribes. That comes from a dark place. But the powers and authorities foster patterns of life that are exploitative and oppressive of others. And the one thing that the powers and authorities do more than anything else is they make the injustices that we have in our culture appear normal. That's just the way things are. Why do certain people live here, other people live there? Why, do certain people, why are certain people winners? Why are other people losers in culture? It's just the way it is. Well, God has actually defeated these characters in Christ. But you might ask the question, what are you, what are you talking about? How has he defeated them? We still see injustices in our culture. How can we say that God has defeated these characters? Well, Paul will go on now to explain how God has actually defeated these characters in Jesus. And he does this in two cycles of triumph. Here's what God has done. There was this terribly threatening situation, a terribly threatening situation in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, and that is all of us were trapped in spiritual death. All of us were trapped in spiritual death. And you, all of us, you people, me, you, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the age of this world, just this fallen, present evil age, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan and his control of mindsets that we have in our world. We were all trapped by it. The one who rules the spirit that's now working among the children of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. But God was not satisfied with that terrible situation. He created one new people. Paul goes on in, in verses 4 and following to talk about how God has pulled a people out of death and given them life. God has pulled a people out of death and given them life. And of course, in verse 10, uh, Paul goes on to say that he has created this new people specifically to do the good works that he had planned beforehand for them to walk in. So everything that Israel failed in, God has created a new people, us, to be that people passionate about Justice, righteousness. Fantasizing about active and creative justice. People who fill their imaginations with how we might creatively embody God's justice in our world. That's what God has done. God has created us as a manifestation of his victory in Jesus. Well, Paul now goes on to tell a second way that God has triumphed over the powers and authorities that have corrupted our present evil age. And he does so in specifically ethnic and racial terms. In verses 11 and following, Paul says there was this terrible situation. We had tribal loyalties over against other tribes. I was caught in that too, says Paul. Therefore, remember that formerly you, you Gentiles, we had a racially dismissive way of talking about you. We called ourselves the circumcision, and we called you the uncircumcision. You dirty dogs, you Gentile sinners. These are dismissive ethnic epithets. And Paul says, I knew that. I was caught up in it. This is what our perverted present evil age did to us, and it affected me too. We were in that situation. And that situation made us betray our calling. We were called to bring the nations near, but we ended up making the nations distant from God. But God wasn't satisfied with that situation. He goes on in verses 13 and following to talk about what God did 
to rectify or to set right that situation. Here's what he did. He actually created in Christ Jesus one new people. In Christ, God has united all ethnicities, Jew and Gentile. And this applies to our world as well. White, black, Hispanic, Asian, anybody and everybody. God is creating of his people one new humanity where he brings together people from every tribe and tongue so that they have one new label in Christ. That's who I am, in Christ. And I want to point out just one thing here. Um, this, these final two lines or so where, where Paul says, so that in himself he might make the two into one new humanity, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. That he might reconcile them both in one body to God. The move of God in Christ to reconcile humanity to one another and to himself, that is one move. The one move that God makes to reconcile humanity to, it, to one another and to God is one move. It's one move. I just, I want to emphasize that because in our day we have a Christian mindset that loves, celebrates our reconciliation to God, but is not all that interested in reconciliation to others. Or we could say it this way, we have a theological vision of things that says the primary thing is my reconciliation to God. It's a secondary issue to be reconciled with one another. We have, there's been a statement published very recently that was driven by this conviction. A statement on social justice that tries to get in there and divide up what God sees as one move. This is a reflection of our reluctance to be a people of creative and active justice. God justices us. He justifies us. He righteousnesses us. He justifies us. He rectifies us. And he rectifies our social situation. We are a social body. We are a political entity that embodies God's justice. Well, Paul goes on. Paul goes on uh, after talking about God's unification of one new people to talk about what the result of this is. At the end of chapter 2, Paul says that this new people does not gather at the temple like Israel did. This new people gathers as the temple. We are the temple of God. We're the new temple where God's spirit resides. And temples in the ancient world stood as monuments to the uh, supremacy of a deity. Temples in the ancient world stood as monuments to the supremacy of a deity. That's why when conquering armies came into a new land, they obliterated or destroyed the temple because our God just defeated your God. But the church stands as a monument to God's triumph in Christ. The church stands as a monument to God's triumph in Christ. And here's the thing. Who is the audience for God's triumph. Who's the audience for the church's conduct as a political entity? Who's the audience 
that watches our corporate life of passionate pursuit of justice and knows that God has triumphed in Christ. Who's the audience for that? It's kind of unexpected. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul says that the defeated powers and authorities, they are the audience for watching us live a radically different way. Because when the powers and authorities who have corrupted this world so that people act with injustice, when they see a people acting in renewed patterns of justice and unity, they are baffled. And God gets to teach them a lesson about his multicolored wisdom. Paul says in Ephesians 3.10 that God is doing this in the church so that the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So when we are a people of justice, when we are a people that embodies God's life on earth, God gets to send these signals to the powers that he has indeed triumphed over them. And he lets them know you are defeated enemies and your day of ultimate destruction is near. When we become a people who are complacent about injustice, God's claims at the cosmic level are mockable. God's claims are laughable. Because on a cosmic level, the powers can say, you do not have the power, God. You do not have the power to create a people passionate for justice. You do not have the power to create a people that live renewed patterns of life. That makes church life cosmically significant. Not so concerned, uh, Paul is actually less concerned about a watching world. Paul is highly concerned about watching cosmic powers that are going down to defeat. And we can celebrate that as we do justice and as we share and as we live with generosity. Well, just a couple things for living this out. Just a couple ways that we could possibly embody this in our world. And a couple implications I'd want to pass on. What's my time? All right. I want to be sensitive. I'm sorry. First of all, here's one implication for just thinking about these sorts of dynamics. The gospel in the Bible is about what, is, what God is doing in the cosmos, about what God is doing in this world, about what God is doing with his people. Many of us, this is like a 500-year problem. We're just, we're, we're, this has been done to us. We think about our lives in individualistic terms. So we think about our salvation in individualistic terms. I've been saved. The big story is the story of God and me. We have to work hard to adjust our speaking and thinking and imagining so that we're always thinking in terms of we. And my participation in a new people that wraps me up into God's cosmic project. The gospel is a, a far larger story than just me. Secondly, in thinking about justice and in thinking about pursuing justice, just make sure that you are having these conversations and thinking about becoming a people of justice as a loved people. We talk about being Christian people as a people overwhelmed by God's love. It's very easy for us to, to use should language. And I'm trying to adjust my talking so I represent the great joy of being Christian. We get to do these things. This is for our life. 
Jesus said, my burden is light. But it's easy to talk about being Christian as if it's a heavy burden. But it's not. This is life. It's just so counterintuitive. We get to do this. We get to do this. Thirdly, being a people of justice will be highly uncomfortable. Cultivating new and redemptive habits will be, we just won't be used to it. So we might have to try on some new things and rub shoulders with some different kinds of people. Um, and again, like I said, that will be for our joy. A fourth implication, something that I've been uh, thinking a lot about for myself and I would like to pass on to you. Um, think differently about your involvement at a place like Crossroads. And evacuate from your language set. Talk like, I go to Crossroads or I attend Crossroads. Um, don't go to Crossroads or come to Crossroads or attend here. This is your family. I mean, this is your last name. Make your involvement here a project that is like 35 to 55 years long. Commit to dying here. Because becoming a people of, in, uh, becoming a people of justice and being involved in transforming our patterns of conduct will be a long-term project. So commit to that. And let it be a long-term project. Quick changes are often not lasting. But be here for the long term. And this will require all of you committing for a long period of time. Another implication, uh, commit to a project of becoming aware of who you are. And I mean that especially as white people. Um, learn what it means to be white. This is largely a white group of people. Um, think about being white and learn about what it means to be white. Uh, black people, Hispanic people, other uh, folks in our world and in our culture have known what it is to be what they are, but white people have just thought that we're normal. But there are loads of ideologies and practices and habits and patterns to being white. And think about being white, not like white people. Because the first thing that we think when we think about being white is all the reasons we have to feel bad about ourselves or maybe to feel guilty, or we get defensive because you're just going to make me feel guilty. That's a dead end, and you're not allowed to think that way because you're Christian. You're loved by God. You're justified by faith. No condemnation. So guilt and blame and all that are off the table. So learn how to think about being white as a Christian and learn how to separate how do I think and what do I do and how do I behave as a white person? What comes from whiteness? What comes from the Bible? So I have to tell you, growing up, I honestly believed, I grew up in a Bible home, I honestly believed God picked up the Bible and whacked it at some point and my white church fell out. And I didn't come from a culture, I came from the Bible. I'm not kidding, I thought that. I also thought my dad's car flew because he, I was going to touch the air conditioning thing one time, he said, don't do that, the car will take off. I thought a lot of crazy things. Lastly, I would love to spend so long on this, I won't. I'll just mention this. We need to rethink politics. We need to rethink politics. We are a gathered people with an organized way of life under rule, under the rule of the Lord Christ. We embody the politics of Jesus. That means internally we pursue justice. We look at this community and we discern where is shalom not happening and what are the active steps we take in our community to restore shalom so that everyone is participating in that. And then externally, we look at our world and we think in terms of 
Where is shalom out of whack? And how can we be involved in actively restoring God's justice? Which means we need to open our eyes to the vulnerable populations in our city who is being displaced with this big building boom that we're seeing. Who, when rents are going up, who's being affected by that? Where are the vulnerable single mothers or intact families that are living in their cars through a Michigan winter? And there are, there are more than a few. How are refugees who are being resettled in West Michigan doing? If God's heart is specifically for these people, then this is our calling, to look out for where the vulnerable are being mistreated. So Crossroads, I just, I leave that vision with you, and I just ask you to give some consideration, have a long-term conversation, it may take 15, 25 years, of rethinking and rethinking and rethinking what does it mean to be a people that embodies God's justice, for God's glory, for your joy, and for the life of the world.